All right, thank you, Dave, very much. Children's Church can be dismissed at this time. Everyone else, if you would turn to John chapter 18, please. John, John chapter 18. Again, when we do stop and think about all the things that God has done for us, it is no marvel that we should have a love for him. But um, as Dave's saying, the way that he loves us, that is the amazing grace, amazing love. It's like, for exactly what reason? <laughs> Other than the fact that we belong to him and uh, we are his children. So. Uh, marvel over the fact that he loves us, it should be obvious that we should be loving, loving him. John chapter 18, um, again, um, we're in the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, and the Pharisees want Jesus dead. Um, Jesus tries to prepare his disciples for it. He takes them to the upper room for the Passover meal dismisses Judas and Satan and speaks very candidly with his own disciples, telling them that stop letting your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I want you to be with me forever. In the meantime, God's going to send another comforter like unto myself to be with you. The devil isn't winning. Don't be troubled. Don't waver. Don't give up. I have overcome the world. And again, as we look at uh, you know, what I mentioned earlier, what Tom's alluded to and so forth, the, uh, the darkness of the world in which we live today, you know, think about that time when the disciples and what the disciples were about to experience. Uh, they had, you know, as far as what they saw Jesus do and as they're walking around with Jesus and seeing him heal the sick and ca cause the blind to see again, they're like on this level way up here. This is like super awesome, super great. And then Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to leave. I'm going to be delivered in the hands of the Romans. And I'm going to be gone for a little while, but I'll, I'll be back. It's like letting all the air out of the balloon, and it's like, oh my goodness. And what's about to take place in the next, you know, what we look at tonight, or this morning, and, and which we'll go into tonight, um, no. What we're going to look at this morning in the next few weeks is horrible. Just absolutely horrible. And, and again, picture yourself as one of Jesus' disciples with all this anticipation. And all of a sudden it seems like it's all going down the drain. It's all going right out the window. And he says, do not worry. Do not waver. Do not be troubled. I have overcome the world. The bad guys are not winning. No matter what it looks like, the bad guys are not winning. He prays for and with his disciples to give them extra comfort. Tells them to be faithful. Tells them they need to get along with one another, have a unity of purpose. And he prays that God would protect them from the world and from the devil. He tells them that you are in this world, but you are not of the world. Then Jesus prays for future believers. He prays for us, that there would be a oneness, that we would be one with each other and one with God and one with Jesus, and that the message of salvation would be a clear message and, and a oneness even about the message, that people would see God and Jesus in us, 
And he says, I pray that they will be with me and that they will see my glory. Jesus then goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, as his custom was. And he sets the eight disciples in one spot and takes Peter, James, and John to another and tells them to pray that you enter not into temptation. And literally, again, in the Greek, it's so you enter not into temptation, not even once. Jesus began to be exceedingly sorrowful, so much so that it was observable to the disciples. He said, I'm very heavy. I'm sorrowful unto death. I'm sore troubled. And he went, as it were, a stone's cast from them. And then he was in agony in prayer. He fell on the ground and fell on his face. And it says, again, repeatedly fell on his face. He was wrestling, struggle, and torment. Uh, if it's possible, let this hour pass. Remove this cup. And in the agony and the torment that he was going through as he prayed and he prayed and he prayed, he began to sweat blood. Dr. Luke, the only one to mention it in, this, in the Gospel of Luke, as we have a hemothydrosis, bloody sweat to the point of death, so angels come and minister to him. Jesus comes and see, comes back to the disciples and finds them asleep, but it says they were asleep for sorrow. Their own sorrow, perhaps, watching Jesus struggle, perhaps, and again, those of you that have experienced this where something is just weighing so heavy on you, so sorrowful and so in anguish, and, and it's like, it, it's time for bed, it's time to go to sleep, and I, I just can't sleep, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray through the night, and, and you cry, and you pray, and in agony, and God, oh, please, and trying to find answers, and you're wrestling with this, and other people around you are struggling, and they're heartbroken as well, and, and it's just to the point where finally just exhaustion takes over. And even though you didn't think you could sleep, you just collapse, and, and that's what happened to the disciples. They just could not stay awake any longer. Jesus mentions to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So many different applications to that one phrase, certainly reference to them. It's like their spirit, they, they wanted to stay awake. They wanted to pray. They wanted to pray along with him as he was in agony, but the spirit was willing, but the flesh was like, we've had all we can stand. And even Jesus, when you talk about the, in, in the garden as, as his spirit, is like, I must always do the will of my Father, not my will, but thine be done. The flesh is going like, nah, maybe we should have this cup pass from me. Maybe we should let this hour, if, it, if at all possible, God, can't you do some, some other way? And again, even in Jesus, you see the wrestling between the human flesh and, and the spirit. And even the fact that as he's fighting this, the flesh is weak as he begins to, his pores begin to burst open with blood as the agony and the stress that he was under. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak in regards to spiritual things. If, if you determine in your heart and your mind, and we talked about this a little bit at the end of the message last week, your brain can be fine. and You can say, I, I will never do this and in, in regards to maybe a particular sin or, or activity. I would never do this. I would never say this. I would never go there. This is wrong. I understand that it's wrong. Uh, this is evil. I'm, I'm God's child. I would not be a part of this. No, not ever would I do this. 
and your brain says this, and the spirit says this, and your heart says this. But then there's the physical temptation that comes along with it. And all of a sudden, either because of fear, or because of pleasure, or because of some other thing, the flesh works against the spirit. This flesh is weak concerning (laughs) commitment to spiritual things, but it is strong in commitment to uh, fleshly things and carnal things. And so we talked about the idea of don't ever overestimate your ability to resist sin. Jesus wants the cup to pass. Peter insists that he won't deny. The disciples want to pray, but they sleep. Paul will write about it. He says, I... I, (laughs) I have these things that I, 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 the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's the stuff I do. And those of you that have uh, uh, memory difficulty, as I do, um, what happens is there's things I'd love to forget, and that sticks in my head. There's things that I want to remember. <laughs> Go on. And it's like, I wish, we, you know, I wish we could pick and choose these things. It's like, I, I remember things... <laughs> My, my mind is filled with 9,000 billion zillion pieces of useless information. Uh, and um, I, I, I would still do extremely well on some kind of trivial, you know, trivial pursuit or trivial contest uh, because that's, my, that's all that's up there. <laughs> Worthless information, that's all that's there. Things I want to forget, I remember. Things I want to remember, I forget. Things I want to do, I, I just never get around to doing what I want to do and for the Lord. And the things that I don't want to do or say, I never, that's, you know, the flesh is willing, or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Second time, Jesus goes to pray and he's still struggling. And he comes back and the disciples are still sleeping. As a matter of fact, he wakes them up and it says they have nothing to say. They have <laughs> nothing to say. And the third time, Jesus comes and wakes them up and tells them, it's time, the hour is at hand, but what has changed is Jesus has changed. He's not sore troubled any longer. He's not in agony. He's not very heavy. He's not sorrowful unto death. He's now calm, confident, and in control. What I'd like to share with you this morning is uh, it's so, many, so many things here. Uh, that if it was not such a serious thing, uh, there is some humor as Jesus is in control. It's like the, the, the soldiers, the Sanhedrin, uh, the Judas, they think they're devil, they think they're in control. And by everything that we read and everything we see, Jesus is the one that is in control. Notice, please, John chapter 18 Verse number one says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, into which he entered with his disciples. Okay. And then in verse number two, it says, Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Judas knows the place. That's the first point here. Judas knows the place. Judas, the one who betrays him. 
Judas is always going to have that distinction throughout the course of Scripture. Even before he does, he has that distinction. Judas the betrayer, known throughout all of history as the one who betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's quite a remarkable legacy to have. Judas the betrayer. He knows the place. They've done this before. This is possibly a frequent prayer location. It's a place where Jesus likes to be a quiet place. It's, again, halfway between uh, Jerusalem is here, the Mount of Olives is here, that goes down into the Kidron Valley. The Garden of Gethsemane is down in this valley. And so it's like partway between both. We stop the trees. The, the Garden of the Olive Press is what Gethsemane means. And he stays among the olive trees and prays and talks to his father. This is a frequent location. Judas knows where to find him. And he brings a band of men and officers, it says in verse number, um, no, verse number uh, three. He received a band of men and officers from the chief priests. Now again, these possibly are Roman soldiers, but they're at the direction or at the bidding of the Sanhedrin, okay? Again, at this particular point, Jesus is not a Roman problem. Uh, the idea, well, the Romans, you know, hated Christianity, they hated Jesus, they hated the disciples, they couldn't care less, okay? Later, they will, okay? As Christianity spreads throughout all the Roman Empire, as the disciples go about going into all the world and preaching the gospel, later they will. Later they will step up and they'll try to stop not just Christianity, but Judaism as well, trying to, uh, you know, any, you know, trying to disrupt this and as best they can. At this particular point, and we'll even see as as they bring Jesus to Pilate. Pilate says, "I, I find no fault in this man. <laughs> we, we don't have a problem with with Jesus. That's your problem." And the Sanhedrin somehow though is able to gather together a band of men, a band of officers. Uh, some suggest uh, as many as 500 to 600 men, okay? Others say as many as 200. Uh, it's a tenth of a legion, which would be uh, about 600, or a cohort, which is about 500. Uh, and, um, and it says they come with lanterns, torches, and weapons, Later, another passage in Matthew 26, it said the swords and staves, or swords and sticks with pointed edges, <laughs> pointed, pointed ends. And so they come to Jesus. Uh, Judas knows the place, and he's, um, Jesus has resorted there often, and he comes, and again, what are we talking about? Uh, Jesus and 11 disciples. That's 12 people, okay? Possibly some others might be there in the group. Don't know. But 600 soldiers? Even 200 soldiers? Earlier, by the way, uh, as far as weapons are concerned, uh, uh, Peter asked the question, the, the question is asked, how many swords do we have in the question? Two. So even as far as weapons are concerned, there's only two weapons. 600 to 12. Lanterns, torches, weapons. Well, Judas knew the place, but Jesus knew the plan. 
verse number four, um, says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come unto him, went forth and said to them, whom seek ye? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. Um, Jesus, you know, Judas knows the place, but Jesus already knows the plan. Remember, again, before this even happens, he tells his disciples, he wakes them up for the third time, guys, uh, they're, they're coming now. And they're like, hmm? hmm? We don't hear anything. They're coming. They're coming. Trust me on this one, okay? They're on their way. The hour has come. Jesus knows. And, and then you look at this verse, verse number four, and this explains too, this, this one little phrase explains all the agony that Jesus went through as far as the garden is concerned. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him. This is why. It's like he knew what the future was. He knew what was going to take place. He knew what the agony of, of the cross is going to be like. He knew what separation from his father was going to be. He knew all things that would befall him. And he went forth and said, whom seek ye? And I think this is kind of interesting because uh, the possibility, we're going to read it, some different accounts from different, uh, the, the different gospel writers, but it's possible before Judas even gets a chance to, you know, to give him the kiss on the cheek or whatever the deal is, before Judas even gets a chance, Jesus comes out and says, hey, who are you guys looking for? Now again, if he knows all things, why would you ask the question? Other than the fact <coughs> that there's lots of times. Uh, this, again, would be a wonderful study of, of questions God asked that he already knew the answers to. Okay, uh, Cain, um, where, where's Abel? <laughs> How am I supposed to know? Am I my brother's? Adam, Eve, where are you guys? Did, did you take of the fruit? <laughs> questions he already knows the answers to. All the way through. And here, and here he says, uh, uh, who are you looking for? And it mentions Judas was there. It says, he went forth and said to them, whom seek ye? And they said, well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. I am he. Who are you seeking? I am he. What do we need Judas for? But Judas was there. Judas was there. Now, Jesus takes control, starting in verse number six. Watch this. And as soon as he said unto them, I am he, they went backwards and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, excuse me, uh, who are you looking for? <laughs> Are you sure that's who you're looking for? Oh, we're looking for Jesus and Nazareth. Are you, are you sure? Be careful what you look for. This is the dog chasing the, the semi. Um, what are you going to do when you catch it? Um, I am he. And he says, they went backwards and fell to the ground. Again, I, I, the multitude is in charge. The crowd is, you know, the mob mentality. It's out of control, and it's, there's 600 of them, and they're coming. 
okay? This is where you run and you hide. And Jesus steps up and goes, hey, who are you guys looking for? <laughs> well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, well, that, that's me. And whether they made a move towards him or whatever, all of a sudden, I'd like you to back off just a little bit. I need some personal space here. And down they go. Down they go. It says they not only fell backwards, but they fell down. Literally, uh, think bowling pin if you want. Okay, um, uh, Guys, okay, or whether it's a breath or whatever, who's in charge? Who's, <laughs> it's like, um, you know, back off a little bit. And then almost like I said, this is almost the humorous part. He says, uh, excuse me, guys, um, <clears throat> who, 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 who'd you say you were looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, be careful. Careful who you're looking for. I am he. The crowd is subject to Jesus. He takes control of the multitude. He moves the crowd. He addresses them. Who did you say you were looking for? Are you sure this is who you want to find? I am he. And then he says, if you're seeking me, let these go their way, the disciples that are with him. And, and once again, this, if I'm a disciple, all right, this does not look good. <laughs> there are 200 of them. There's 500 of them. There's 600. It doesn't matter. Uh, they're coming to get Jesus. What's the best plan? I would say the best plan is let's get them all. Let's get all these disciples, let's get Jesus, let's put an end to this once and for all, let's put them all to death and finish this thing up, let's, let's finish this. And we're, we're like, oh man, are we in big, baddest trouble. <laughs> this does not look good, and all of a sudden Jesus says, uh, excuse me, back up just a little bit. Oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> that's all right. And then he says... If you want me, if it's me you want, let these go. Since when does the guy who's outnumbered 600 or whatever begin to make, you know, negotiate? Uh, since when uh, would, would they even listen? He says, if you want me, if you seek me, let these go their way. And it goes, later it'll say that prophecy might be fulfilled. And this is where Jesus said, if in John 17, just a chapter before, he says, all that you've given to me, I still have. Nothing has happened to them. They are still alive. They're still well. They're still, you know, so that that fact is still intact. Jesus says, let them go. And by the way, when they were allowed to go, they went, okay, We'll see this in just a, a little bit. I've lost none. Let them go. Jesus is in control of the multitude. He's also in control of Judas. Uh, as you move here from this passage in John 18, if you want to turn to Mark 14, it, it should be up here, on, up here for you, but Mark 14 says immediately while he spoke, then came Judas. And crowd has been knocked back. Then Judas comes, you know, because it's like, well, he said, you know, he's the one. 
And again, let's just let's give them the benefit of we're going to give them the benefit of darkness here. All right, uh, they have plenty of lanterns and torches. It mentions that the fact that they have plenty of lights. Okay, but is this the guy? Judas confirms it immediately while he yet spoke. Cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves. And again, from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This is the Jewish ruling body that are the ones that are after Jesus. And he that betrayed him had given him a token, saying, Whoever I shall kiss, the same as he, take him. Okay. And here a phrase, lead him away safely. Again, I hate to admit this every single Sunday to you, but I've never seen this before. Lead him away safely. Now, it sounds like Judas is concerned of Jesus' overall well-being. No. Literally, the translation for this is lead him away, but be careful. He's slippery. He's tricky. He knows how to escape these kind of situations. Be careful. Take him We'll see another passage where it says, hold him fast, okay? Don't let him out of your sight. Don't let him out of your grip. And, Judas is like, you know, and so Judas is concerned that Jesus is going to escape. Not that, you know, well, treat him nice. Don't be mean to him. That's, no, no. Uh, and as soon as he was come, he goes straightway to him and said, master, master, and kissed him. The hypocrisy continues. Oh, master, master, you know, it's like, oh, this looks like you're in a bad way here, buddy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Whose side are you on, Judas? Whose side are you on? Whoever I kiss, take him, lead him away safely. That means without incident, with care, with caution, lest he escape. Um, by the way, um, Judas has seen Jesus escape before. Um, this is Judas, of course. <clears throat> um, great multitudes, they were from the chief priests and scribes and elders, whoever I kiss, lead him away. But beware, because we've seen Jesus escape before. Um, Luke chapter 4, this is in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. They rose up, the crowd rose up and thrust Jesus out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill where the city was built, that they might cast him headlong. They're literally going to throw him off the cliff, okay? And again, we talked about this many, many months ago, but the whole town is there, the crowd, the multitude. And again, this, 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 this almost parallels a, uh, a cartoon, okay? We're all going to kill him and we're going to throw him off the cliff. They get ready to throw him off the cliff and he's gone. Where'd he go? Where do you go? And in the cartoon form, it'd be crawling underneath their legs, you know, going out the backside somewhere. But it says, uh, next verse, it says, but he passing through the midst of them went his way. He just said, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And just left. He said, I've seen him escape before. Master, master, lie, lie. Look at the passage in Matthew 26. Here's what it says. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he hold him 
fast. Grab tight. Grab tight. Hold him fast. Literally, it means with intense force. And then Jesus says, forthwith he came to Jesus and said, hey, old master, and he kissed him. And then Jesus says to him, friend, why have you come? And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Why are you here? Judas's betrayal was absolutely unnecessary, other than the fact that Jesus predicted that one of you will betray me. Because Jesus, the plan is, this is the cup that was given to me. This is the plan. This is God's plan. I must give myself over to them. Um, what part did Judas contribute? Nothing. Nothing. Other than his own demise and his own falling apart. He says in Luke 22, Betray us now the Son of Man with a kiss. Really, Judas? Really? Jesus is in control of the multitudes. He's in control of Judas. He's in control of Peter. Luke 22. When they were about him, saw what was about to happen, okay, to their credit, okay, when they that were about saw what was about to happen, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? Shall we fight? Again, how many swords do they have? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far, stop it. And he touched his ear and healed him. Okay, we've got some other passages here. But it is interesting to me again, just trivial information. Matthew never mentions that Peter is the one that cuts off the guy's ear. Mark doesn't mention it, and Luke doesn't mention it. John tells us straight out it was Peter. Okay? Uh, John is also the one who says, We ran to the tomb, and Peter outran me, but. Um, no, we ran to the tomb, but I outran Peter to the tomb. You know, the disciple whom Jesus loved outran Peter. Hmm. <laughs> he mentions Peter. Matthew doesn't say, Mark doesn't say, Luke doesn't say. Seeing what would follow, shall we smite? And they cut the servant of the high priest's right ear off. Uh, Matthew's account in Matthew 26 and behold, one of them, which were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus, and put away thy sword, put it into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. You really, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray my father, and he will presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. What is going to happen here? 500, 600, 200 soldiers with weapons, swords, and pointed sticks, all right, and a dozen disciples, and well, 11 disciples and Jesus, two swords, and we'll see in a moment, it is Peter that goes on the attack. <laughs> What's the next thing that's going to happen? Everybody's drawing their swords, 
And he that lives by the sword is going to die by the sword. This is not good. And literally to diffuse the situation, Jesus heals the ear. And he says, listen, he says, put your sword away. Do you not understand? Do you not see that I am in control? Do you not understand that if I wanted to, I could call 12, a legion is 6,000. 6,000. I could have called 72,000 angels to come and help, which would have been awesome. That would have, been, that, that would have made a wonderful story. Uh, the 600 soldiers versus 7,200 angels. I wonder how that ends. Um, not good for the soldiers. Twelve legions. But he says, it must be. It must be. Leave it alone. It must be. Now, here we have the only one. John tells us who it is. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. Now, again, imagine this one. Um, if I ask you, if I said, all right, there are 11 disciples. We'll name the 11 disciples. There are two swords. How many think Peter has one of them? <laughs> what, if, what are the odds that Peter has one of the swords? Really good. Really good. And sure enough, he does. This sword is, by the way, I, I was going to bring a yardstick to help with my demonstration. But uh, the sword, uh, let me see here. Um, back up one. Let me, nope, too far. When Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, he smote the high priest's servant's ear, cut off his right ear. Uh, servant's name is Malchus, and of course, John gives us both of those information. Uh, we know that it was a right ear from another passage as well. But we learned Malchus, and we learned Peter. Then said Jesus to Peter, put up your sword into a sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? I, Peter, I, I, this is a must. I have to do this. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. There's a sword. Uh, this is believed to be, this is in a museum in Poland somewhere, uh, this is supposed to be St. Peter's sword, okay, or what the sword looked like. Uh, it could be just as authentic as any other museum piece that you <laughs> might want to find. But it's approximately from the, from the handle part, the blade part up is about 28, 29 inches long, okay? Um, you know, basically, this thing's about the size of a yardstick, okay? Okay. Um, Let's see, I need an unsuspecting, a uh, jagger person. Come here. You get to be front and center, all right? I don't have my sword with me, so I just, I'm just going to have to pretend. Okay. Um, I am Peter, you are Malchus, okay? You're down here, I'm down here, all right? Uh, we assess the situation. It looks bad should we do something? So we fight? And before Jesus even has a chance to say no, Peter grabs his sword and takes a swing, okay? If I'm swinging a sword at you, what are you going to do? I'm gonna th I'm, I want to take your head off, okay? Right about there, okay? I'm swinging a sword, what are you going to do? Attempt to dodge it. Yes, okay. You're going to duck, and you're going to duck that way, okay? And then, whoosh, off comes the ear. However... This is his left ear. In order for him to lose the right ear, Peter's got to be left-handed. 
Ooh, this is my CSI stuff. <laughs> all right? And it all explains everything, too. If Peter's left-handed, that explains everything about Peter. Okay, left-handed people are weird. Okay. Are you right-handed? You're left-handed. That's perfect. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Of course he is. All right. Uh, of course. Um, just a supposition, okay? Takes a swing. You know, I, I, you know, I don't, you know, how else, how else do you just, if you take an ear, man, you took the guy's shoulder too. You know, if you're, if you're cutting down this way. You know, let's see, I just want to take your ear off. <laughs> I think Peter's trying to kill him. Now, what, another thought I had, which is completely random, and you can just dismiss it if you want to. What if Peter was really after Judas? Isn't that cool? I mean, it's just a cool thought that I had. Maybe he's going to kill Judas. <laughs> and, and Malchus got in the way, you know. He took a swing at Judas, and this other guy got in the way. I don't know. It would have helped Judas's cause a little bit, but anyways. Um, it's not surprising that Peter has one of the swords. And the fact that his right ear is taken off, and then Jesus immediately tries to defuse the situation by healing. By the way, again, <laughs> the only gospel writer that mentions the healing of the ear, all four of them, all four talk about the fact that Three of them said, eh, some not-to-be-mentioned disciple took off the servant's ear, okay? Um, and um, John goes, I'll tell you, it was Peter, okay? Uh, and it was his right ear, okay? And then, but only one of the four speaks about Jesus' healing. Wild guess? Dr. Luke. The only one that mentions the bloody sweat, the only one that mentions all that Jesus went through physically in, in the torment part, the only one that mentions the healing is Luke, as Dr. Luke. And again, I think it's to quickly diffuse the situation that's going on. Poor Peter. He should be praying and he's sleeping. He should be listening and he's talking. He should be surrendering and he's fighting. He should be fearful and he's bragging. He should be believing and he's denying. Jesus is in control of the multitude. He's in control of Judas and mostly in control of Peter. All right. And finally, he says to the group, seriously, what did, what did you come out here expecting? A hardened criminal, you came out as if you were going to take a thief or some horrible criminal. You came out with all these weapons and all these things. Why all of this? Jesus said unto the chief priests and the captain of the temple and the elders, which were coming to you come out as against a thief with swords and staves. I was daily with you in the temple. You stretched forth no hands against me. Why, why didn't you, if you wanted to arrest me, why didn't you do it then? I, I, I taught every day in the temple. You guys sat in the front row seats. If you wanted to do something, why didn't you do it? How come at night? How come now? Oh, because it's your hour. This is your hour. This is the hour you like to do things. The hour is darkness. Your hour is the power of darkness. 
John 3, I think it's 19, says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. He said, this is you. Why, why didn't you arrest me in the daytime? Well, you know, the, there's an answer to that question. The answer is, well, there's not too many people around. Uh, the masses of people might not have liked the fact that we were arresting you. Hmm. So you come at night, so the middle of the night, in the dark with all these people, because this is your hour. This is when you guys do your stuff. This is the hour of darkness. This is the power that you have. This is your hour. Because men love darkness rather than light. Following this, Matthew 26 says it very clearly. That same hour said, Jesus unto the multitude, are you come out against the thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled and that all the disciples forsook him and fled. Peter took his swing and when Jesus said, let these guys go, and again, that's even more incredible, the fact that Jesus, or Peter, took a, Peter attacked the soldiers. Yet he was let go. He wasn't charged with anything. He was, he was free to go. Maybe later that's what he feared. But then my favorite part, which is, again, is, is like, why is this included and why is this here? And it only appears in the book of Mark. And Jesus answered and said to them, Are you come out against the thief with swords and staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. That catches us up. And there followed him a certain young man, having his pajamas on, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him. He was actually grabbed by somebody, somebody... Snatching while the other ones are fleeing, this kid gets caught. They lay hands on him and he left his pajamas and fled away from them naked. The only place this story occurs is in the book of Mark, written by John Mark, who would have been that certain young man. This is the John Mark who would later be, he's Barnabas' nephew, later would be one that Paul says, you know, he forsook us, I'm not interested. And, you know, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus was, was just a boy, but a curious boy at that, and he barely survived in the garden. Wait for it. Barely survived, naked. If you have to explain it, it's not funny. Um, all right. <laughs> Jesus is in control. I think something else that's kind of humorous that says they bound him. They held on to him and they grabbed him. Judas says, you know, make sure you don't let me go. So they bound him. Let me ask you this uh, ropes on Samson. And ropes on Jesus. Which one would be least effective? <laughs> Understanding that Sam's can, can break them and it looks like they fall apart like nothing. Who's more powerful? Did they need ropes on Jesus? He's willingly going with them. He's in control. One of the, one again, the futile, the futile things about it. But it appears the bad guys are winning. 
The day in which we live, that's exactly the same thing. I, that's, what I, that's what I thought Wednesday morning. The bad guys are winning. How come the bad guys are winning? How come? Do they not understand? Do they not get it? I prayed one way. I don't like it. I don't like how it turned out. I don't like how the results turned out. The bad guys seem to be winning. But the whole time, God is in control. Whether you and I believe it or not, God is in control. It's not one of those things, well, I believe, it doesn't matter what you believe. It is a fact. And the whole time, Peter's, Peter's running, Andrew's running, James is running, John, they're all taking off. Mark's getting out of there the best he can. This is not good. This is not going to get any better. The rest of this night is not going to go well. It's going to get worse. But Jesus says, I must take this cup. This must happen. This is part of God's plan. The bad guys aren't winning. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, for regardless of what we might even see with our eyes or think with our head, you are in control. Father, help us to do the best we can with what we got. Father, help us to be a testimony for you. Help us to stand for right. Help us to fight for right. Help us to stand for the truth. Help us to impart truth and love that people might see their need of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may we recognize the lateness of the hour. May we recognize the wickedness of the world in which we live in. And may we do our best to win as many as we possibly can for you. Father, even though sometimes we're concerned and discouraged and even worry, it's good to know that you're in control. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this opportunity to hear the word preached at Factoryville Bible Church. Factoryville Bible Church is a non-denominational church in Athens, Michigan that seeks to share the good news of the gospel through a number of ministries in the area, including Factoryville Christian School, Camp Elvin, and the Passive Forward Shop. To learn more about the ministries of Factoryville Bible Church or to support the mission of our church, visit our website at factoryvillebiblechurch.com. Thank you.